I've been here before, years ago, and um, it's good to be back. I would like to express my appreciation for your hospitality, for welcoming me to this place, and I would like to, you know, pastors know what it takes to be a church, to make a church, to build a church, and I'd just like to acknowledge the faithfulness of the people in this room and the generations of faithfulness represented in this place where we stand, what it took, the sacrifices it took to make this building and the school next door. Um, it's great to be a part of that, and I'd also, I know what it takes to put together a worship service. I'd like to thank the worship or praise team for putting together this worship service this morning, for the opportunity to lift our voices up, and for all of the time and rehearsal and thought that took. And I appreciate the invitation to be here this morning, the ongoing support that your church provides for our campus ministry in Madison and for the opportunity to talk about it this morning. And I appreciate the interview format because when the interviewer asks good questions, thank you, Steve, that gives me, the interviewee, a chance to say things that I assume that you actually want to know instead of just giving my own spiel. But now it's my turn. I want to be the interviewer. I want to know something about you. I'm curious, for starters, to know how many of you have a favorite book? Could I have a show of hands? Higher? Okay. Now put up your hands again, or, or keep your hands up if you've read your favorite book more than once. That's almost as many hands. More than twice? More than that? I'm so glad, because I'm certainly a re-reader, and I'm glad I'm not the only one. I have a long list of books that I haven't read, that I really want to read, that I think I really ought to read, and yet very often, instead of opening one of those unread books, I pick up a book that I've already read before, and I read it again. Why do we do that? One reason is simply that we enjoy that book, and we enjoy rereading that book. But I don't always reread a book because I enjoy it. Excuse me. <clears throat> Sometimes I reread a book because it challenges me. I sometimes even reread a book that makes me very uncomfortable because that's how we learn and that's how we grow. The novelist and literary critic Vladimir Nabokov said it like this. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but he said, one cannot read a book. One can only reread it. In other words, a great book is a work of art. You can't really get everything there is to get out of it if you read it only once. People don't just glance at a painting and say, I've seen that. We don't listen to a great piece of music and say, I've heard it. 
We go back to contemplate. We listen again. And it's the same with great books. They're works of art. Could I ask the sound person to mute me for just a second? Because I need to clear my throat. Thank you. We'll all be better off now. So we read three parables. Oh, wait, did I read the scripture? I didn't. I'm going to read three parables. And I don't see a Bible here, but the way I read my Bible is on my phone. So I'm reading from the New International Version, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for, for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After, this, there's never been a movie made of this, has there? be an interesting movie. After he had spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed a single one of your commandments. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home... You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And he's found. These three parables belong together. I would say they are a trilogy. How many of you know that word? Three discourses, three stories, three works that belong together. The book I've probably read most often, the book I reread the most, is called That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. It's the third book in a trilogy And I like it because it deals with kind of the life I have, the intersection of the world of ideas and the world of faith and the power of technology. It kind of happens on a university campus with lots of laboratories and lots of social engineering going on. So it feels like a familiar place to me. But all three books in that Trilogy can stand on their own, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, which I think was Lewis's own favorite of the books that he read, and That Hideous Strength. But you get the most out of each of those books when you read it as part of the trilogy. So usually when I reread it, I start from the beginning and read all three, and I appreciate the last one in its fullness as part of the trilogy. So we're rereading a trilogy of parables this morning. And I think we're rereading. How many of you know this, these three parables? Right. And this is not a trick question. The elders are not looking around to see who doesn't know. 
But what starts this trilogy off? It actually starts with an interesting problem, with a situation. Jesus was doing something that bothered the leaders of his religious community. They didn't like the way he was acting. I'll remind you of what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners, and our text puts quotes around the sinners, but I don't know if the quotes really should be there. They were sinners. And they were all gathered around to listen to Jesus. They, they were receptive to what he had to say. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were complaining because this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. The Pharisees were pretty fastidious about eating with people. So Jesus told them three parables. Jesus composed a trilogy of parables in response to what they were saying and what they were complaining about. In many ways, these three parables are all quite similar. You could even say they tell the same story. In each parable, someone loses something precious and then finds it, and that person is filled with a joy that needs to be shared with the community. The first parable, volume one, is about a man keeping sheep. The image of a shepherd is actually a rich and common metaphor in the Old Testament, that part of the Bible that Jesus and the Pharisees had in common. Israel is often portrayed as God's flock, and God is the shepherd. So I'm sure the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law understood that Jesus was talking about the relationship between God and people. But it's interesting to see how Jesus made sure that they were paying attention. This first parable actually comes in the form of a question, a question about the ordinary experience of people in that culture that they would have been able to confirm or deny. Which of you, if you had a hundred sheep and you lost one, wouldn't go off and search until you find it? Questions make you think, don't they? Every one of those people listening to Jesus that day had an answer. They knew that sheep can't take care of themselves in the wilderness. They can't survive on their own, and if a sheep is missing, that probably means it's sick, or it's hurt, and it's in danger of death. It would not be able to walk, and if, if the shepherd didn't find it and carry it back to a place where he could take care, for, take care of it, the sheep would die. The shepherd, on the other hand, knows if one of the sheep is missing. The sheep represent the entire wealth of the shepherd. They're all he has, his whole investment. So when one sheep is lost, yes, the shepherd worries about it, and he goes looking for it, and he rejoices if he finds it alive and is able to rescue it. Everybody in that culture would know, yeah, that's how things are. And Jesus says, that's how God is. That's the punchline. In the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who didn't wander, who don't need to repent. Or what if a woman had 10 silver coins and lost one of them? Here comes another parable. 
and another question for people to think about and to hold their attention. This parable was probably a little more surprising because the character in this parable who represents God is a woman. There were a few Old Testament metaphors that compared God with a woman, like Isaiah 49:15, where God says this to Israel, can a woman forget her nursing child? or show no compassion for the child of her womb, even they may forget, but I will not forget you. Still, if we want to appreciate the way this parable is speaking and and the art of Jesus, we should probably notice things like that. We should notice that Jesus is playing a little rough with the sensibilities of the Pharisees when he chooses a parable that compares God with a woman. Some of us, on the other hand, probably love that about this parable. Half of the human race probably loves that, at least, about this parable. But here are the main things we should notice about this second parable in the trilogy. This time, what's lost represents not just 1% of the person's total investment and wealth, but 10%. And even though these are coins and they obviously have financial value, they probably have even more personal value in at least two ways. First, it was rare for a woman to own in that culture the kind of property that constituted the most significant wealth, flocks and herds, and land. Most property of that kind was inherited, and it was inherited from father to son, from male to male. But the woman, a woman in that culture, could have personal property in the form of money or jewelry. And in fact, money was often strung together into a necklace or sewn into clothing. The second thing we should notice is that this kind of property might be one of the few things that actually could be passed down from mother to daughter. Maybe on an important occasion, like the occasion of a daughter's wedding or the birth of a child. These coins were probably part of a set, and a set that represented both a personal history and even a family history. Maybe it also represented a woman's hopes for the future, hopes of passing those coins down to her daughter someday and having that gift echo through the generations. Here's what I'm saying. The personal value of this lost coin was probably far greater than the financial value. That explains why this woman is so diligent and persistent and lighting lamps and sweeping and searching every corner until she finds that lost coin. And it also explains the joy that makes her want to share her happiness with her friends and her neighbors. I lost something personally precious, something that meant so much to me, and I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't find it, but I got it back. I'm so happy, so relieved. And Jesus says in the same way, there's more rejoicing in the present. There's this kind of rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
I hope you can get the sense of increasing value that this conveys as we reread this trilogy of parables in relation to one another. So what about the third parable? Well, think about it. We started talking about one out of a hundred sheep, representing one percent of a person's total assets. And then we moved up to one out of ten coins, which represents not only a tenth of the total financial value, but also something that's probably a necessary component of something that has personal value, a, a sense of completeness. And now in the third parable, we come to something that's absolutely priceless and irreplaceable, a child. Here, fractions and percentages don't matter. You don't lose one of your two children and say, I've just lost 50% of my total reproductive output. You grieve. Your heart breaks. And here's what's interesting about this third volume in Jesus' trilogy of parables about lost things. The thing that is lost, the son, the younger son, actually becomes a character in the story. He gets a speaking part. He gets a personality and a history, and it turns out he's not a very good character at all. In fact, it would be hard to imagine a more disappointing child than this younger son. He asks for something that he's really not even entitled to. In that culture, it was the elder son who received the inheritance. Luck of the draw, if you're born first, you get the inheritance. But far worse, to ask your father for your share of the inheritance before your father is dead is basically the same thing as saying to your father, I wish you were dead. I don't really care about you. I just want your stuff. That would have been a great shock to the original hearers of this parable to see his son speak and act this way. But here's another shock, a bigger shock. The father grants this outrageous request. In the first two parables, Jesus was staying true to life in the culture. Now, he's engaging in a kind of dark satire, a kind of farce, showing us something that would never happen. How could any child be this heartless? And even if a child was this heartless, how could a father give in? to such an outrageous request? How could a father love a child this much? Is it even love? Well, let's pause for a moment and remember who the audience was for this parable. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious experts, the people who had all the answers. Jesus is showing these experts two things here. First of all, he's showing them that Yes, as a matter of fact, he actually does understand what a sinner is and how bad sinners are, these people that he's been welcoming and eating with. They are bad children who have disrespected their father. Jesus is not naive. But he's also showing the Pharisees that they don't really understand very much about God. Jesus understands the sinner 
But Jesus understands the one sinners sin against and who continues to love them. Jesus shows a deep understanding of both of these things. He portrays not only the offenses that sinners spew out towards their Father in heaven who loved them, but also the misery that they vomit out on themselves, like someone who parties too much and wakes up in their own mess. And he portrays not only the grief that this brings to God, who continues to love his Son through all of this, but also the joy that it brings to God when sinners come to their senses, when they reach the end of their rope, when they realize that they're on this journey away that's a journey away from life. And they turn around, and they come home, and they repent. God's joy is not just like a shepherd with a hundred sheep who loses one and then rescues it. God's joy is not even just like the joy of a woman who loses one of her ten precious coins and finds it. God's joy is like a father who thinks his precious child is lost forever and gets the child back. This father, this God, throws away all pretense of dignity, all right to say, I told you so, and just races to embrace his child, covers his child's shame, restores this child's honor, and invites everyone to share the joy. But not everyone is ready to accept the invitation. Not everyone wants to dance when they hear the music play. The biggest surprise of all in this parable is what the older son does. I mean, it actually rings true to life. People really can be like the older son in all his bitter, resentful jealousy. We like to nurse those kinds of negative emotions. But this is the sourest note in the whole story. The elder son, believe it or not, is even more grotesque, even more horribly out of tune with, his, with the music in his father's heart than the younger son was. I find it really interesting to look at the parallels with the other two parables when we get to this point. A shepherd goes to seek his lost sheep. A woman searches and searches for her lost coin. But which son does the father in this story have to go searching for? It's the good son. Good. The one who claims that he's always obeyed his father's commands. But this is the one who doesn't really know his father's heart at all. He doesn't even think of himself as a son. The son who comes back says, yeah, treat me like one of your slaves. But this older son makes himself like that. He basically thinks of himself as a servant, and a cheated servant at that. I've been slaving away for you all these years, and you never even gave me a young goat to have a party with my friends. This is the son who's so lost that the father has to go looking for him. 
pleading with him. If the younger son only loved his father's possessions and despised his father, the same thing is actually true of the elder son, only he doesn't even realize it. Here's what the elder son asks, what did you ever give me? And here's what the father says, son, you have me. Everything I have is yours. And the unasked and unanswered question, but we all know the answers. What good is the father's stuff without the father? If you lost a parent that you loved, you know that it doesn't matter what you inherited. You'll never get your mom or your dad back. I'm sure the Pharisees understood that in this parable and in this character of the elder son, they were looking at a portrayal, at at a caricature of themselves. Jesus was showing them that while even all the angels in heaven are rejoicing over sinners repenting, they were scowling. They were keeping a record of every sin. They were counting all the wasted years, calculating the value of the wasted inheritance, tallying up all the sacrifices that they had made in their efforts to please God. And now look, God rewards them by telling sinners it's okay to come home. Well, yeah, that's what God is like. I'm sure the Pharisees saw themselves in this story. I'm not sure they saw God in this story. But the real question is, where do we see ourselves in this story? I was talking to someone about this parable not too long ago. As I was writing the sermon, I sort of sometimes talk to people. What do you think about it? And this person said, wow, you know, when did I stop being the younger son and become the older son? And I have to say the same thing. Sometimes I'm channeling the older son. Well, this trilogy of parables does two things. First and foremost, I think, it invites all of us into the joy that fills God's heart when sinners repent. It invites us to come and be forgiven and to celebrate when other people are forgiven. And if a church doesn't do that, it utterly fails. And second, it warns us away from the three great failings of the elder son. Feeling anger and resentment when God forgives someone instead of feeling joy. And I think we all feel that temptation sometimes. The conceit that creeps into our souls that actually we deserve to be part of God's family. Even though our Reformed theology and every faithful theology says that we most certainly do not, that we're all and always will be the younger son, wandering sinners. We never get to stop being the first son. It may be the greatest failure of all, loving the gifts of God instead of the giver of the gifts, the one who blesses, the one whose greatest gift And blessing is himself. Son, you always have me. If you ever feel ungrateful, remember that. You always have me. I talked about being 
a reader and um, I'm also sympathetic to reading from the writer's point of view. I write and I write sermons and sometimes I struggle to write and I feel like, you know, I've, I've studied this, I've studied these parables so much and I, it's so hard to put all of these great thoughts and feelings that they evoke in me in words. And, and one morning recently, as I was wrestling with these texts, I was walking through the University of Wisconsin campus. And I was, I don't know, how many of you have been on the UW campus? It's really a beautiful campus. And I, I went to my favorite part of the campus, the old observatory on, old, on Observatory Drive. And there's a bench there, and it looks out across Lake Mendota. And I sometimes stop by there in the morning before I go to my office so that I can spend some time thinking and praying. And I was praying that morning saying, God, there's, there's something in this parable that I'm just not seeing. Or it's a, I'm not getting something. I, speak to me, Lord. And I, this is all true. I look down on the ground, and there's a rock on, on this bed of mulch in the garden, you know, that brown mulch. A, a rock this color would stick out. And I always look, especially if they're flat rocks, because I like to skip stones, and sometimes I put them in my pocket. and take. But I pick this up, and I notice there's some gold coppery marker or something on it and I turn it over and there's words and here's what's on the rock what do you think if a man has 100 sheep and one goes astray does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray Matthew 18:12 and I thought, well, God, if you really wanted to speak to me, you would have made this the Luke version. <laughs> no, I picked the rock up and I thought, I'm sitting here in front of a window of an office where I used to read Euripides with Professor Emmett Bennett in the classics department. I'm sitting here on this campus where so much of the story of my life has unfolded, where God brought me back into the fold of the church and where I'm now a pastor. And yes, I'm the number two son. I'm the wandering son. I'm a person that God gathered because God loves me. And if I ever forget that, if I reread these parables and notice something about Greek tenses or something like that and don't remember that I'm precious in the sight of my Father in heaven, and he offers me himself every day, the one who stretched out this beautiful lake in front of me and created this beautiful world and all its wonder, is my Father. And I guess I'd just like to pass that on to you this morning, whoever you are. You're precious to God. God is seeking you and if there's an obstacle between you and God, whether it's shame or pride, whether the thing that leads you away from God is the path of pleasure or the safety of some kind of security, whether your wrong step was dancing wildly when the serious music played or putting on a scowl when the band struck up the joyful music, God is seeking you and wants you and is waiting for you to come to your senses to come back. You may think sometimes that you don't matter to God, but you matter more than one lost sheep 
matters to a shepherd. You matter more than one lost coin matters to a woman who had ten. You matter as much as each of those two sons mattered to the father in that last parable. God loves you that much. This is a love story. So let God love you. Let God find you and put you on his shoulders and heal you like the lost sheep. Let God find you and string you back onto the necklace that's always lying close to God's heart. Let God cover your shame with the finest robe. Let God persuade you to come inside and celebrate with joy. God is looking for you. Let God find you. And if you want to live just a little more deeply into this parable, be like God himself, the one who goes out to seek, the one who searches until the search is rewarded, the one who loves others and says, come inside, come inside. And that's really, if I could say one thing about our campus ministry in Madison and every other ministry, including, I'm sure, your ministry here in Brookfield, it's just a ministry of being there when someone happens to wander near enough that you can say, come inside. There's a father here who loves you. Let's pray. Well, Father, how can we ever thank you enough for your love, not just in making us, but in patiently giving us the freedom to make our own choices, in respecting us enough to allow us to exercise our own wills and wander, but also always hoping, always desiring, always seeking us till we come back. What a good and great God you are. What a great thing it is that you reconcile sinners to yourself, that you welcome us back into your family. Help us, Lord, to hear the music of celebration, to come in and dance. Help us to receive the robe and the ring and the sandals and come to the feast and help us to be people who extend the same gracious invitation to our neighbors around us. And you never give up on us, God, so let us never give up on them. And most of all, thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that you have never given up on us, that you sent your son to bring us back into your family. In his name we pray. Amen.